Queer Rights Sessions, QWS Podcast, in partnership with Blarney Books and Art in Port Ferry. I'm your host, Rob, aka RWR McDonald, and this is a Words and Nerds spin-off series. Thanks, Danny! I'm coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Each month, QWS Podcast will bring you reviews, shout-outs of LGBTIQA plus writers, and feature an interview with a queer writer from our rainbow communities. And now on with the show. Hello, my name is Jonathan Butler and I am stepping in for Rob today for one of our special Pride Month interviews. I am the author of the 2022 non-fiction book, The Boy in the Dress, and you could hear my QWS interview with Rob in Season 1, Episode 7. Today, I am very excited to be chatting with Roz Bellamy. Welcome, Roz. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Roz's debut memoir, Mood, is coming out this year with Wakefield Press and was longlisted for the 2020 Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award and shortlisted for the Scribe Nonfiction Prize. Roz is editor-in-chief of Archer Magazine and their writing has been published widely. They're a public speaker, mentor, teacher, academic, new parent of an eight-month-old baby <laughs> and such an amazing cheerleader and support for so many LGBTIQ plus creatives. So it's a real honour to be able to, to chat with you today. There is okay. so much that I want to get into, um, but before we do, uh, we kick off all our interviews with the same question, and that is, how has your work influenced your identity? It's such a good question. And I listen to people's responses and I'd love to say I've thought about what mine would be, but I'm going to just do it off the cuff and just (laughs) speak from the heart, I guess. Um, I think for me, since being very young, uh, writing has always been my way of figuring myself out. I've just always been a pretty awkward and shy person. And so often I could just do on the page what I couldn't do out loud and it's just the place where I don't know I've been more comfortable pitching to a piece to an editor and getting a pitch accepted and writing a piece and figuring some part of myself out than actually like talking to someone in my life like (laughs) like the normal version of me that I would maybe like to be where I could figure that out just you know chatting to a mate but no for me it's been a weird public process of of teasing things out and so like I remember pitching a piece to SBS about my hair and and phys- like physical queer identifiers, so my tattoos and my hair, um, having that accepted and then going, okay, um, what am I going to say about that? And using this accepted piece, like pitch to go ahead and like dive into some of these complexities that I wanted to figure out what, what they meant to me. And so I think it's just been a place like it's it's always been like a bit of a dear diary. It's been a therapist. Um, it's been like a friend and a peer as well, where it's safe to go and delve into things, even if they then become unsafe because they're out there and published and, you know, possibly getting unwanted attention from <laughs> trolls and commenters. But a place that for me has just always made the most sense to figure out identity. And that's um, very relevant as a memoirist. Um, <laughs> so I want to just read uh, your the blurb or a little bit of information about Mood just so the listeners mm. know broadly what it's about. So Mood explores the intersection between mental illness, Jewish and queer identity, and the intergenerational trauma. It's a story about love, family, and self-fulfillment. It's also a candid, absorbing inquiry into the self and the rewards of embracing who you are in all its complexities and contradictions, even, especially when it's hard. 
Roz Bellamy is a first-generation Jewish Australian and their long-standing anxiety intensified when they became an early career teacher as past trauma of being bullied in their own school days and the creeping toll of anti-Semitism in the classroom undermined their burning desire to be the perfect teacher. So before we get into some of more of those heavier themes, I'd love to ask you Mm. about your path to publication. So Mm -hmm. we actually met because we were both members of the 2022 debut book Mm -hmm. gang. I now understand that you Uh, one of the reigning leaders of the 2023 (laughs) cohort. Obviously, you won some great awards as well. So, yeah, I'd love just for you to talk us through what this sort of path to publication has been like for Mood. Yeah, it's been a really interesting one. It started off a completely different book a few years ago, more than a few years ago now, really, um, when it was shortlisted for the Scribe Prize. It was actually called The Queerness of Marriage, and it was about uh, my marriage to my wife, which we won through a lesbian magazine, (laughs) as you do, and it kind of like went into some of the stuff that was going on at the time around marriage equality and the postal survey, and as that all started happening, I was like, you know what, this book is not right, like, marriage equality is probably going to be achieved and then what and some people you know were very comforting and encouraging and were like you should write it anyway it's still important to talk about and I was like but I don't care anymore (laughs) so I put it aside and then when I came back to it I started again wrote a different manuscript and then went back to that original one and went okay there are bits and pieces in this that are still workable but they're going to kind of need to be reworked into this and once I started working on mood it just fell into into place I suppose sounds a bit cliche I guess of like oh no it was the wrong book and then once the right one came along it all happened but it kind of did and like once I was once I had that manuscript and I was working on like the query letter and all that sort of stuff it it made so much more sense to me I was able to write with conviction (laughs) about why someone should publish it when I felt like the book really really needed to be out there and And so I centered around myself. I had an agent, but decided to go my own way once I started again with mood. And um, so I was reaching out to publishers myself and Joe Case, who ended up being my editor at Wakefield. She'd been following my work for a while. She was really excited when my submission came in. It all kind of like was a, a lovely meant to be sort of feeling like where it came in and started working with Joe. And yeah, I guess in terms of like the timeline, so many things got like so many things happened. COVID was happening around the same time that was affecting so many debut writers in different ways. And then at the same time, I was going through fertility treatments and then pregnancy. So it just kind of made sense to put it off. And I feel like I belong to the 2022 (laughs) book gang still, but now I've got this 2023 one. And there's actually like a person in my position as well, where her book's been pushed to next year and she's in our group. So I'm like, maybe this will continue forever. There'll always be someone like (laughs) waiting for their debut (laughs) to come out. And, but yeah, I I don't know if that answered about the pathway. No, definitely. And are we pretty confident it's going to be coming out early October? We are confident. Yes. So now that I've actually like gone through some of those final things that happen before your book comes out, I'm like, okay, now, now it's happening. Right. (laughs) Before I thought it was now it's happening, happening. (laughs) Well, I cannot (laughs) wait to read it. Um, As someone who has written a book about history, I have to ask you about history. Obviously, you know, queer people can have a pretty interesting relationship or complicated relationship with history, uh, family history, as well as queer history. When you look at family history, you know, it can be very heteronormative. 
when you look at queer history, it can be very tragic. So Mm. that can result in a sort of yearning for more positive stories. But your book really engages with intergenerational trauma. So I wanted to know if you think it's important for queer people to engage with family, queer and general history and what we can learn from these stories. Mm, such a good question. I'd love to hear like a whole panel about this. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Um, Done. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, in the book, I write about teaching history as well. So you'll get your, your nod there. <laughs> There's a lot that comes to mind when you ask me that. I think it's so important for us to grapple with our history. For so long, our queer histories haven't been taught at all. And when I say taught, you know, I acknowledge there are problems in the way that history is taught anyway. And there's so there's a lens that's applied to it and all those sorts of things. But even just at, at its very basic, I guess, queer 101, there's there's just none of it. It's all erased in the classroom. And so first of all, I'd love that to change. And I'm seeing it changing. And I, you know, I hear about TikTokers who are t- taking people through queer history and all these sorts of interesting online approaches um, that are making sure that like particularly younger queers are getting that access, which is wonderful. In terms of my own and my my reason for taking it on. I guess it, it was less about the queer side of it and more about digging into archives of any kind for me that was so important. When I was in year 10, I did a big family history project and among all the things I was given, this was before my family realised I was a memoirist. I think they might have held back a little bit on some of the content if they had. Um, one of the things I got given was my great-grandfather's diary and my great-grandmother's diary and I'm still sort of working out how they're going to be part of my second book, which they are, but I, I'm not really sure yet how. But I think for me, looking at those and seeing what's what's happened in my family, in my genes, all those sorts of things along the way, is really important to me. It's a part of understanding myself. It's a part of understanding Jewish people. And I think for me, once I started grappling with it, it was really also about figuring out for me being, you know, living in 2023, having the internet, I've got so much access to so many parts of my self and my identity. I can like research and figure myself out all day long if I want to. And I think trying to understand the people that came before me and my family who didn't have that, who were they? How did they live their lives in the times that they were in? And because things like their mental health weren't talked about and things like sexuality, gender were definitely not talked about, everything was assumed. Like, you know, you were either able-bodied, didn't have mental illness, straight, cis, married to, you know, the opposite sex. And if you were outside that in any way, you were institutionalized. And so I think for me, that's why I always go back to the Soviet side of my family, particularly because I'm like, God, if I'd lived in those times, like there's so many parts of me that would have been not just abnormal, but like criminalized, institutionalized. And so it's like, I get to live this very free privileged life. Why, how I I need to understand that, I guess, is why I keep coming back to it. And it's not just the families and historical aspects that are, are heavier in the book. You do revisit some of the experiences that you had when you were younger, uh, talk a lot about your uh, mental illness experiences and diagnosis. Um, I'd love to know how do you navigate revisiting that as a writer? I imagine it's um, not easy. Mm, Yeah, I think for me, I've, I've, like I said, I've always enjoyed writing to make sense of things. So I've, I've enjoyed narrativizing things that are difficult. And so like, yeah, to, to give you one example, 
after one scene where I first really saw the severity of my grandfather's dementia, I went back to where I was staying and the only thing I could do to cope was write a scene about it. And I wrote a scene complete with dialogue and all sorts of things. And I was like, this is a good scene, objectively. Close the laptop, you know, save it away, not to be read for like maybe four years or so. Same sort of thing. But I guess with some of it, like I wrote those scenes and because this book has taken a long time, I've had the luxury of of writing and setting aside to return to. And so you mentioned the bullying. And I think one way I've dealt with writing about that content is going a little bit meta with it, um, I suppose. So there's a scene in the book where I meet up with the childhood bully. So there's really one. There There was a lot of bullying at my school and I dealt with a lot of it, but there's one particular bully you know, bully in caps lock, (laughs) who was hardcore. And I go and meet this bully during a a time where I was manic, possibly psychotic. And I turn it into a scene and it's there in the book. And I think there's been like a lot of fears about including it. One of which is I'm in contact with this person in the scene. When I say it's meta, she actually asks, are you going to put this in the book? And I'm like, you know, (laughs) no, And then there it is. It's in the book, like having that chat and talking about the book within the book. And, you know, there's nothing like greatly new about that as a technique. But I think for me, that helps me deal with it a little bit, like lets out that steam. Like, I know this person's not going to like it. I know a lot of people are going to have issues with various things around around me doing this and putting this out there. But um, I think, yeah, for me, turning it into the story really helps me deal with it. And I guess I also hear people talking about school experiences still now you know whether they're in their 20s 30s 40s or older and I think it's one of those things that it's like it happens to a lot of us we don't necessarily ever make sense of it like why me why why did they do these particular things am I over it you know does therapy help you get over it or just process it and so I think for me it was really important to explore that um yeah And I'm sure it'll be incredibly powerful for other people to read about that and, you know, who may have been through similar experiences and it can be very cathartic to read that. So I'm sure there'll be lots of people out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I do want to also ask you about your role at Archer because you're not just a writer, you're also an editor. Did I hear that your first, one of your first pieces was actually published in Archer? Is that right? Or am I making that up? No, that is right. That's true. Yes. Do you remember what it was about? So, yes, it was a piece about fashion, weirdly, which like I say weirdly because I'm not a fashion person. (laughs) My mom was a fashion designer and my sister is really into fashion and I feel like the the non-fashion person in the family, but that was my first Archer piece. And I just reached out to Amy, the founder, and it all happened. I was like pretty amazed and shocked by it all. It was the first piece I was paid for and um, I got to interview two queer really interesting people um, and kind of like contrast and talk about their different experiences of how they express themselves visually. Amazing. And look where you are today. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, there's obviously since then, there's been a proliferation of lots of queer publications out there, but I think Archer has a pretty unique point of view. What would you say makes Archer more of the unique Mm. in the market? Yeah. I think one thing I love about it is like, it's just not, afraid to take on criticism, which I think is really important in a publication. And having seen various publications go through all sorts of online dramas and like refusing to take accountability and things like that. Like I I think Arch is very different to that. And we had a meeting yesterday um, where we were talking through the story list for this upcoming issue that I'm working on. And I kind of, one thing I really love is that anyone on the team, doesn't matter like level, length of time you've been there, whatever it is, 
can problematize anything we're talking about. And it's not like, oh, should I bring this up? Is this going to be awkward? It's like, no, you know, I will ruin your favorite if I need to. I will, <laughs> I will point out why this particular story doesn't work. But that's that's like a very, I guess, negative lens on why I love Hacha. But I think that is important. And it's important to me to see that too, because I guess just seeing, anyway, I'll move on to the positive side. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I even came at it from that, but I think like, I, I do love I think that's important to me anyway. Yeah, I guess from what makes it different to others, we've always been about platforming different voices. And so there's this rule at Archer that once you've been in print once, you can't be published in print again. And it does mean, you know, like some of the bigger Australian queer names, like, you know, your Benjamin Laws and um, whoever, like they have had their piece in Archer and it's done like not to be there again. And so it's meant that we never draw back on like oh you know who we haven't heard from in a while and then get that same voice again I really like that as well and I think all of the content is curated including the advertising all of it is approached like from a pretty ethical framework and as I guess as inclusive as possible so the last issue which was when I was on leave having my baby um, was about incarceration and various things came up that the team haven't had to deal with before like you know the question of how is this issue going to be read by people who are in prisons jails if there are a lot of pieces advocating for abolition for example how is this even going to be allowed in will it be that was like that was just one of like a thousand issues that came up that, that the team had to deal with and it's just never been a team to uh, like or um, publication to shy away from that it's like no we're going to get these people published some of them we have to deal with parole officers we are going to find a solution and move forward through that and I just love that I don't see that elsewhere yeah absolutely that's great we probably have a lot of queer writers listening and they mm. are probably very curious around uh, what is the best way to approach Archer and getting a piece of theirs published perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, guidelines on our website. So if you just go to archermagazine.com.au, uh, we have a section about, I think it's called work for us. Um, and then under that, there's a section about writing for us. It's really detailed. I've directed so many people. I've spent like time there myself when I was working on the, on pieces for Archer originally. Um, it's changed over the years, but it's still incredibly thorough. And it tells you exactly how to reach out to us, what to put in it, what to think about. So I encourage people to look at that. If you get overwhelmed by it, because some people find that too much info, you know, simplify it for yourself. Every pitch gets read and thought about. So also we ask you if you'd like to be considered for print, um, you can put that in there as well if you would. And we are, uh, we are a very approachable team. I've encouraged, like one of my friends hates pitching with a passion, is an incredible writer. And I'm like, just send me dot points. And, you know, not that I would encourage that as a policy across the board for everyone, but I think if, you, if you're someone that's very emerging and very nervous about your approach, do it. Like you're better to just say even the most basic information about yourself and a piece that you're burning to write. And I've helped people craft their ideas and get them a bit more confident with them and I know our current online team are great and very supportive so don't be afraid reach out and with Archer they are they um I think I heard that ethos you mentioned before around mm. sex is weird for everyone yeah <laughs> I sort of uh, I love that as sort of like an idea to sort of approach um, a publication <laughs> yeah it's on our t-shirts and occasionally like it, it elicits 
um, comments, as you can imagine, from people. Mm. Um, some people like to go, no, it isn't. <laughs> and I'm like, well, good for you. I'm happy yeah. for you. <laughs> it was at one point and it might be in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I guess there's a bit of an overlap here with your academic work. Have you finished your PhD? Should I be calling you doctor? (laughs) It's my (laughs) first question. I finished it. Yeah. Yeah. So I found out I passed it the day before I had my son. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. I know. Thank you. (laughs) And I graduated recently. Not that I'm doing anything like with my doctor title currently, but it's there. (laughs) Well, that is amazing. Um, And because that was in researching the impacts of engaging in life writing for LGBTQ plus youth. So obviously you dedicated a lot of your life to it and Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you the very unfair question of can you give us any insights now? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I worked with a group of 16 to 20-year-old queer people and they were very generous enough to share their writing at various stages. So before and after participating in a life writing workshop and then at various stages right as the pandemic began and then through it a little bit. And there's so many things I could talk about that came out of it, but I guess for me, one thing, if I had to pick one takeaway, is I guess that life writing can be really great for trans young people who potentially don't have um, that many outlets, like say in schools, and unfortunately in unis, higher ed takes as well, to explore or talk about much of their identity, but seeing the creative ways that they thought to write about themselves. And this was, you know, this was all their, their own creative, unique approaches. This was not like I taught them and said, this is how you should do it. This is like what came up. Um, And some of them like switching pronouns within the piece, but then writing about themselves, like changing person as well to talk about their body, sometimes like exploring, say it was dysphoria, euphoria, um, shifting, whether it was person, tense, voice, to go between like external, internal views of themselves I wish I could like start quoting some of them because there's like really beautiful and profound sentiments in this work. And um, I think for me, just seeing the way that like just given even the most basic tools under their belt to do life writing as a technique, what some of them came out with. And one of them like even said something about like, I guess, learning to love this body that has done so much and gone through so much for them. And seeing, I guess, sort of like what I was saying to you at the start of this, that that writing's always been that way for me to make sense of things and often bad things and that for them it helped them kind of come out of stuff and often even if that difficult thing was their head thanks to society it was like how to grapple with that and wrestle with it in their writing and then maybe come to a good place about it. Another thing that I um, really enjoyed researching for this interview was your relationship with pop culture. So Mm. I recently went to a a Madison Godfrey book event and they were singing the praises of pop culture as a really legitimate uh, sort of inspiration for literature. And I heard your piece around the problematic fave um, (laughs) and obviously you have a relationship with Buffy, um, meeting your partner uh, (laughs) through a message, a Buffy fan message board, which is absolutely amazing. So (laughs) as a pop connoisseur, what do you think reflecting and writing about pop culture means to you? So that's a great question. And when you said you went on a a research thing about me, I thought you were going to say about greyhounds for a second. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure we've talked about greyhounds before. (laughs) Um, Yeah, pop culture. One of the pieces I I really had fun writing also, I don't know if that came up on your your list, was about Taylor Hansen, who was one of my like first and biggest um, crushes and obsessions as a teen. But yeah, I've written, uh, yeah, you're right, written a few things about pop culture. I don't know, like now as I you know, I'm newly a parent and feel like I'm losing touch with like 
what's currently cool and hip in like the most dramatic way ever in my life I'm like oh yeah pop culture that's a thing I used to love (laughs) but I, I don't know I think it's like I guess finding a phenomenon that you can share with others when you're someone who feels a bit weird and a bit abnormal that when you can find and share that joy together like in in the current 2023 debut writer group you know what's what's talked about in the group stays in the group but one thing I will say that has come up is Taylor Swift and I think even that shared experience of Taylor whatever it is about her that you're obsessed with and our group is like a very queer heavy group and there's been a lot of talk of like you know Taylor queer rumors and stuff like that and um, I think you know Imagine like when we were younger, if there'd been Taylor in her heyday back then with these queer rooms, like, I don't know, there's just something like exciting and fun and like breathless about it all that like, you know, it feels bigger maybe than like everyday mundane life. And that's what's always excited me about pop, pop culture, Thank as you. removed as I am now. <laughs> <laughs> And now we have our book reviewer, Joe from Blarney Books and Art in Port Ferry. Hi, Joe. What book do you have for us today? Hello, Rob. Um, today we've got Small Beauty by Xiaxing Wilson Yang. And what's this book about, Joe? This is one of my favourite books. It's a very, very quiet meditation on, on a woman who's grieving, actually. She just happens to be a trans woman, and the book is written by a trans woman. It's not a transition story. It's her life, basically, and it's her trying to figure out her place in her ancestry as well. She's mixed race, so she's part Chinese, part Canadian. So it's set in Canada around Ontario, and then she goes to a small town where her friend and cousin had died, and he'd left her his house, his dog, his truck. Chajing is, as far as I know, Canadian. Sadly, I can't find any link to her at the moment, so her website appears to be down. So this was originally published through a Kickstarter project, yes. and then Brow Books in Australia picked it up. And the Brow edition has a, a cover of a broken pot plant, which is illustrated by Lee Lai, who was responsible for Stone Fruit. Which we had on our um, episode last week. Yeah. 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 And um, the broken pot plant, is that symbolic? It is. There's a a plant in Sandy's house that she rescues and brings back to life. So she moves to Sandy's house in this small country town over winter and spends a winter basically all alone. She doesn't talk to anyone and she's just grieving for Sandy. But at the same time, she's also exploring. I think her mother left the country when she came out as trans to her mother. So mother's off the scene. Sandy's mother was sort of a a replacement mother for her a bit, but Sandy's mother's also died. And her grandmother starts appearing to her as a ghost, but she starts talking to her. So she starts rediscovering her roots and making connections. And then uh, she meets a woman called Diane randomly in town. I think Diane has put herself in May's way to run into her. And Diane, it turns out, is her aunt's ex-girlfriend. Okay. And no one was aware that the auntie was gay. So is the auntie Sandy's mother, is her, is she sisters with yes. May's mother? Okay. And is this um, also where the Chinese heritage comes yes. through? So it's not the white Canadian, it's um, known yeah. it's all on that side? Yeah. Yeah. So and- the father apparently was, Sandy's father was, the two women had Sandy using a donor. 
May has come and hidden out in the house basically for so long. She's trying to sort out everything. She's feeling terrible about a lot of things and she also finds out that she loses a friend. There's a hint that there might have been sex work in her past and she's been beaten up, she's been attacked, all sorts of things have happened to her. And so this is kind of a healing recovery space for her. There's a particular goose in the book, which is uh, kind of fun. There's not a lot that happens in the book, to be honest. To me, it's a standout because it's quiet and it treats a trans person as a person. And it's not just about their transition journey. And she talks about all sorts of things in it. Like when she goes to the general store in the small town, the woman picks her out as being trans or gay or whatever the woman behind the counter thinks. But she's sort of, you know, oh, my cousin's like, like you. you, you would get along with my cousin or something. And she points to a little rainbow badge on a shirt and May feels like she she doesn't understand why support can be so complicated, why she doesn't necessarily react in a very positive way to someone who's obviously trying to make a connection. Yeah. Um, she also discusses, there's a conversation with her and Sandy, you know, it jumps around in time. So sometimes Sandy's there and sometimes Sandy's dead. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a conversation about the flags, the rainbow flag and the trans flag and how much they hate the trans flag because of the pink and blue, like they're the only options and the fact that there's white in the middle because it's so white. Um, and these are mixed race people looking at this trans flag. You know, it's interesting. And flags, stating territory, all, all of that kind of stuff. But yes, it's really lovely. It's beautifully written. It's quiet. There's a lot of nature in there and a lot of sitting by the lake. When she first meets Nene, says to her something along the lines of, this is a good place to remember who you are. And that's exactly what, what she's doing here, trying to put it all together and piecing her heritage as well. As adults, they eat at Chinese restaurants, trying to remember what Nene cooked in the restaurant before Bernadette convinced her to sell it when she got sick. They romanticise the memory of the dishes so much, they're never sure they've ordered the correct ones. The tastes are never exactly as they remember them. They hold a sense of entitlement to an experience they never had. Wow. It's quite lovely. So, yeah. yeah. There's a lot in it. When she first meets Diane, the ex-lover of Bernadette, Diane doesn't accept trans people. And so yeah. there's, there's a really awkward conversation with Diane where she's, you know, you can't just be become a girl. Does but Diane grow? Diane grows a little bit, yeah. And she also discovers that one of their old friends was, in fact, trans. So, yeah. So there's the there's a spark of hope for the there diamonds in the world. A little bit. Thankfully, May is very forgiving. Please, Diane's read this book. All the Diane's should read this book. Absolutely. And if you know a Diane, perhaps get this book for them as a present. Great so, idea, Rob. So it's, Christmas stockings. Absolutely. So Small Beauty by Zhejiang Wilson Yang. Published by Brow Books. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for sharing. My pleasure. Thanks, Rob. So I want to ask a very general question around mood. When it's finally out in the world, what is your hope for it? Do you have any specific mm. thing that you'd love to see? Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> so I think one of the things maybe that you mentioned was that with queer writing there can be that sense that we need to have positive representation because we're so used to negative representation <laughs> um and I think maybe maybe my hope for it is like I guess adding that nuance that um you know it makes me think of your book too like there's so much there's so much obviously that's that's dark and negative and difficult 
in queer lives. We can't just erase that, but we can look to the beauty. We can look to, we can look to whatever it is. Like everything I say now is going to sound very cliche, but we can look to love. We can look to connection. We can look to hope. And I think maybe that, that, that whoever reads it can, you know, won't walk away going, wow, what a depressing life, but instead go, oh, cool. That's how this person kept their marriage together, you know, despite going through some really tricky stuff. Oh, maybe even though I've got this current diagnosis or even though I've been like starting to worry about my mental health or whatever it is, maybe I can get through it and hear it like some of the ways that you can do it potentially. I don't know. (laughs) No, it's amazing. No, it's really amazing. And now I've got another general question that we ask all our writers Mm. who appear on the podcast. It's about writing. So do you have any advice or top tips for aspiring writers, storytellers out there? Yeah. So I think community and connection is really important and it probably gets said a lot, but I will always come back to it because I spent the beginning of my writing life incredibly isolated. Um, I did a writing degree, but I was, you know, 18 to 21 and like the shyest version of myself that's ever existed and did not connect with people and was like, no, it's fine that I'm not making friends. I will go away and write in my little hole. And you know, I did do that, but I felt really unfulfilled. I didn't try and get things published because I had no networks. And I think the more you can build that up for yourself, the better. And so if you're under 25, there's a lot, there's voice works, there's all sorts of like great initiatives for young, like young, young writers. If you're under 35, there's National Young Writers Festival and Express Media and all those sorts of things. If you're older than those ages and also emerging, still fine. (laughs) You know, there are other things too, but I think whether it's like, an organized community or not, I think finding it is really crucial. And whichever age group you're in, there's tons of say Facebook groups, there's there's Twitter accounts and hashtags like that you can find and follow just to find your little groove. Like one of my friends is self-publishing, has her own indie like community around her. I think whatever it is, find it because those are the people who will read drafts for you, will, you know, support you, sustain you, keep you going there'll be the people that you text um, because the people that aren't writers in your life will be bored of hearing about it. But, you know, you need your writer friends that you can message. And right now I'm going through my proofreading changes and I'm messaging those friends. And I think having those will keep you like nice and (laughs) as collected as possible as you go through this writing process. So just find them, whatever it takes, just go searching for them. Absolutely. And it's probably the worst kept secret ever but writers are actually really lovely people and incredibly (laughs) approachable so even asking for a coffee or a catch-up or even advice um you know sliding into their dms can also you know be a great way to start and sort of get a bit more clued into the events and the different opportunities out there because it can be hard when you're by yourself as you said and if you encounter one of the rare, but they do exist, not nice writers, just keep going. Like you got, you were unlucky. I had that happen to me when I was like 20. It was very off-putting. Right. Just keep going. <laughs> you, you, you lucked out and there are others def- who are so generous and you're right. It, it's actually quite shocking who you can, you know, reach out to and they'll just support you if they can. Absolutely. So Roz, how can listeners connect with you on socials for book events and other things like that? Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you. So my website is rosbellamy.com, which is R-O-Z-B-E-L-L-A-M-Y. I'm also on Twitter, on Instagram as Bella Roz, B-E-L-L-A-R-O-Z-Z, and also on Facebook for those still using Facebook. 
Amazing. Um, Roz, uh, we can get Rob to put them on the show notes. And we also have a shout out question. I would love to know if you'd like to shout out any LGBTIQA plus artists, books, shows, organizations, social media accounts, anything like that. I'd love to. Um, oh my God, so many things spring to mind, but there are two books as of late that I've been reading that are coming out very, very soon that I'm very excited about. Um, one of them is by the author Robin Dennison, and her book is called Blind Spot. It's out with text publishing in about two weeks. It's a YA novel, pretty serious themes, beautifully written with a queer storyline, which we all love. And the other book is called The Modern. It's by Anna Kate Blair. Um, and it's out with Scribner, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster, in, I would say, a month or two. And it's a beautiful book set in the art world of New York. And it's also got a lot of bisexuality. <laughs> Love to say a book's got a lot of bisexuality in it. More books should. But it's just a beautifully written book. Um, and Anna's book and Robin's book are just gorgeous. I highly recommend both. Oh, both sound amazing. And our closing question today, thank you very much for your time is what is your hope for the LGBTIQA plus community? Amazing. Um, Yeah, so I think it's particularly tough times at the moment and I really hope that we can find, I guess like we always have, ways through it, through each other, through the very vibrant, creative ways that we all have of... um, putting our, ourselves and our communities out into the world, even when things are dangerous. Um, so I hope that we all continue to do that, you know, don't get put off by people shutting that down and, you know, the different ways that we might feel like scared and attacked and want to retreat. I think the more that that, that beauty that is in our community, the more that it can be out there and in the open, the better. And I hope that we can do that, you know, with as much safety and, love and warmth around us as possible well thank you so much for your honesty that's been this has been a really amazing chat and uh i cannot wait for your book mood to come out later this year in october i'll be there at the launch um everyone there listening has to buy a copy and come (laughs) along as well but yeah thank you so much for your time and all the best thank you so much Please check out our show notes on Words and Nerds, Blarney Books and Art and rwrmcdonald.com for links, reviews and the interview transcript. Until next time, this is QWS Podcast.